I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20, and then I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 24. And I'm also going to read um, from that text at the end um, of that text in verses 46 and following. I'm, I'm looking at both of these passages together where the apostles are commissioned by Christ in two separate settings. In one setting, they're commissioned by Christ um, on the day of the resurrection, um, as Christ appears to the eleven. Um, in another setting, in Matthew 28, he's told them to meet him on a mountain near Galilee. He's commissioning them there. Uh, but the passages share um, the same commission. And so I want to look at those together. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which... Uh, Matt tells me, uh, when I told him that, is used among your children. And so I think he was telling me I'm not yet a full-grown man. Um, but um, I, I, I quickly checked, checked the references for some of the uh, language or uh, some of the words I'm going to point out that are key to what I'm, I'm trying to argue this morning in the NASB, and, and they were the same. So there will be some some places where the reading is a bit different, but the primary words I really want to pick up on today uh, are the same in both. So look with me, if you will, at Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now look with me at Luke 24. And if you will, turn with me. We'll just start in verse 46. <clears throat> And he said, or Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to speak to us by his spirit. Father, we come before you as your people whom you have kindly, lovingly saved in your son to hear your word. We desire to hear from the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks by the Spirit. We know that he superintended the writing of these scriptures by the working of the Holy Spirit so that they are inspired by him, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. We pray that as we consider these texts that have been given not only by Matthew and Luke, by the superintendents of the Spirit, for their audience, but for your people in every age, we pray that your Son would speak to us. Father, it's clear that I am a man, and my words, apart from the working of your Spirit, would fall to the ground. We pray that every errant word I speak would do just that. But we pray inasmuch as I speak the truth that your spirit would speak into the hearts and minds of this congregation. That you would be at work so that we as a people would be committed to obeying the command that Christ has given to his church to make his no name known where it is not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I, as we began, I, I pointed you to two passages, and I really want to focus on those two passages um, as central to defining the missionary call of the church. 
Both these passages commission the apostles and the church after them to the task of missions. Now, I'm not going to make the case this morning that uh, the church after the apostles is also commissioned, except to say that um, inherent in the promise given in the commission is that the commission will go beyond the apostles. In other words, when he says, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, uh, the sense is that this commission is going to carry beyond the apostles, and, and we, ha we hold, I know Matt holds, and certainly I hold, that this uh, commission is passed on to Christ's church. And there's much to discuss in it, but I really want to focus on two topics this morning. I wanted to find the message that we are to proclaim. What is the message that we are to make known in this mission that we're on? And second, I want to talk about the scope of the mission. In other words, to whom are we to make this message known? So what is the message, and to whom are we to make it known? Um, I want to focus on those two topics. So that's what I'm going to come after in my two major points. Really, first, I'm going to ask the question, answer the question, I hope, what is the message? And second, I want to answer the question, what is the scope of the mission um, that we've been sent on? So what is the message that is central to our mission? Well, the message is the gospel. The gospel. We, we hear that phrase, the gospel, a lot, don't we? We hear it a lot. Uh, we use the gospel in all sorts of ways in the church. We, we have ministries like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel. Uh, we talk about things being gospel-centered or, or gospel-shaped. It's become like an adjective, right? Gospel parenting and gospel marriage and gospel, I'm waiting for the gospel plumbing book to come out, but we, we, we've, we've sort of gospelized everything. We hear phrases like preach the gospel to yourself or, or um, live the gospel as if it's a law. We, we hear pastors um, often throw around the word gospel. In fact, it's, it's one of the things that I know some of us press on a lot of our pastoral friends, you can't just keep saying gospel, gospel, gospel. You have to tell people what it is. So what is the gospel? Well, the word means good news. You've, you've heard that, but, but what is the good news that we proclaim? We see, we received great news as a church this week when we heard that Roe v. Wade was overturned, for which my church prayed, and I'm sure for which this church prayed, and the Lord answered that prayer. And that wasn't a political prayer in the sense of partisan prayer on any of our behalf, because the church has been praying that since the first century. In the Didache, we speak, which the Didache was a manual uh, used uh, by the first and second century church. Um, we spoke in the Didache against abortion in 90 A.D., this isn't a new topic for us since Roe v. Wade. It isn't a partisan one. It's one the church has stood against for millennia. And we receive great news that in our own country, um, nine people in black robes are no longer deciding that it's, it's legal to do it wherever you want, whenever you want. That's good news we heard. We didn't do anything, really. We just heard that news announced. When we talk about the gospel, we're also talking about Good news. But what's the message that we're hearing announced? What is the message of the gospel? For the sake of time, uh, we're only going to consider the central passage um, in Luke as far as the description, description of what the gospel is. Look with me at Luke 24. What is the message of the gospel? Now I want to start with verse 44 and ground the authority for this gospel message that Jesus gives because he grounds the authority for his message, and his, it, which is his work, here in, in, in the Old Testament. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he is fulfilling everything written about him in the Old Testament. That is a way to sum up the Old Testament, those terms he's giving. Um, and he's saying, that is about me. 
and I've come to fulfill it. Then he says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, a reference to the Old Testament, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah they've been waiting for, the promised seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of David, that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now he goes on to tell them, I'm going to clothe you with the Holy Spirit, who will give you the power to proclaim this um, so that men are saved. But I want you to notice two categories here. Two categories here. I want you to notice the, his the history or the historical facts he gives, and then I want you to notice the doctrine. In other words, what I mean by that is the application of the history to you. Now, I'm borrowing these categories from J. Gresham Machen, who wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism nearly 100 years ago. And, and he talks about the history and the doctrine of the gospel. Let's look briefly at the history. Look at Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written, now what does the Old Testament promise the Christ will do? It promises us a Messiah, but what's the promised work of that Messiah? Well, clearly he would come, so that's going to reference his life. The Christ is coming, right? Now look what he does. That the Christ should suffer. Should suffer. And on the third day, should rise from the dead. That is the history. Those are the historical facts. Note what Jesus is telling the apostles. Thus it is written, a reference to the Old Testament, that the Christ, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, should suffer. Now that's speaking to the whole of Christ's state of humiliation. But it's particularly and especially speaking to his death on the cross. You understand, for the Son of God to assume humanity to himself is the beginning of his humiliation that carries through that humiliation to its pinnacle, the point at which he is obedient to death on the cross for us. He's atoned for sin there. And then it goes on and says, and on the third day he rose from the dead, which speaks of his vindication, his exaltation as holy, innocent, and undefiled, the one who has put death to death, conquering the grave for us, taking the penalty due to us. These are the historical facts of the gospel message. The Christ was promised. The Christ was born. The Christ lived. He ministered. He died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. These are the facts of the gospel message. The church has recited these historical facts in creeds like the Apostles' Creed for two millennia. They drive um, at these facts in the book of Acts, the, they being the Apostles. They drive at these facts in the book of Acts. In fact, every evangelistic sermon the Apostles preach in the book of Acts they come back to these same set of facts, these same historical occurrences. Let, I, I don't have time to go through every um, evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts. Matt says you all expect sermons to be over an hour, but I'm going to put some doubt to that statement and try to keep it a little shorter than that. So I won't go through every um, text in the book of Acts. Uh, but I, I did in a book I wrote, it's, not a, it's a shameless plug, I think. I did write a book called Missions by the Book, and in chapter 6, I actually go through the evangelistic sermons and acts if you want to see that. But you can just go read them on your own and save the price of the book. So Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Um, let's, let's look at one example of, a, of, of the apostles preaching an evangelistic sermon. Evangelistic sermon. You guys know this scene. This is Cornelius, the centurion. Um, Peter has been called to go to him. as a, He's a Gentile, um, but he's a God-fearing Gentile. He was contributing to the synagogue. Um, he's believing in the Messiah. But he has this central question 
that burdens him. Can the Jewish Messiah come save Gentile like him? Does the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who created all things, the God who made all these promises to his people, does he also care to save Gentiles? And we know that's on his mind and even on Peter's mind as Peter gets a vision saying, yeah, go to the Gentile. Now look at what, particularly this Gentile, look at how Peter starts out in his description of God. Verse 34 of Acts 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Do you hear how he's answering the God-fearing Gentiles' concern about the Lord? He shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. So now he's going to go to the history. You know what happened. Let me tell you the historical facts. You know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now notice that in verses 37 and 38, you're hearing about Christ's ministry, his life and ministry. John the Baptist was telling us about this coming Christ, preparing for us for him. He came. He was baptized. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit, you know, without measure. And he goes about doing his ministry. And he's doing good deeds. And he's teaching. And he's healing, etc. And then we read in verse 39, that he suffered death on a cross or on a tree, becoming a curse for us in our place. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. Becoming a curse for us in our place. And then in verses 40 and 41, we hear about his resurrection from the dead and the fact that he appeared to the apostles. Paul will go on to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 as well. Now, Peter also preaches what I'm calling doctrine. So if that's the, the history, those are the historical facts. Christ was promised. Christ came. Christ lived and did ministry among us. Christ was crucified. Christ rose from the dead on the third day. If those are the historical facts of the gospel, Peter also preaches the doctrine of the gospel or the application of those historical facts to you and to me. Look at verses 42 and 43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who appointed, who, the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, we announce to the world that Christ is the judge of all. All who remain in their sins will stand condemned. But all who believe in him, all who receive him, receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. And as we hear Peter preach that way, we can hear Psalm 2 reverberating in that message. Now therefore, O kings, be warned, or be, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what Peter's saying. In preaching the message of the gospel, 
Peter is telling us how the historical facts of the gospel message apply to you and to me. That you're blessed if you take refuge in him. So let's consider that a bit. Look at Luke 24, 47. Luke 24, 47. We'll go back there. Because what I want you to see is that Peter and later Paul and Acts are doing what Jesus commanded them to do. So look at verse 47. What does he say? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Now I'll talk about the scope in a minute with two all nations. But notice that. Is that not what we see Peter preaching? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why do you need to repent? Because you've sinned. You've sinned. You've violated God's holy law. And God is not to be trifled with. He will condemn you in your sin. He has already, if you will, condemned mankind in sin inasmuch as we're born with the guilt and corruption of sin. Inasmuch as we physically die, for the wages of sin is death. But he will also condemn us on that great day when we stand before him and give an account. It's been appointed unto man once to die, and then judgment. And so we need to repent, turn from our sin, turn from our lawlessness, turn from our rebellion against God our self-centeredness. And we need to trust in Christ. We need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be forgiven, washed clean, because he died in our place. This is the doctrine. Christ did all these works, what we're calling the historical facts, for you and your salvation. Everyone who receives the grace of faith by the Holy Spirit believes in Christ's name. They receive him and rest upon him. They repent of their sins. And because the Father's wrath has been poured out on Christ, in our place, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ's redemptive work for us in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension and present rule and reign where he ever intercedes for us is applied to us by the Holy Spirit through faith. And thus we receive Christ and all his benefits. Please don't misunderstand this. The apostles did not just going around, go around preaching Christ's benefits. You get this and you get this and you get this. They preached Christ. You get him. And with him comes all these benefits. You want him. Look to him. Trust in him. So here's the question. Do you know him? Do you know him? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope of forgiveness of sins before God? You're a sinner by nature and by choice. We all are. You're corrupted and guilty before God. We all are. You've rebelled against God. You've transgressed his law. And you're dead in those trans transgressions. You're a just object of his wrath. But there's good news. It so popularly said and so seldom thought about the power of it. For God so loved the world. The rebellious sinning, law-breaking people like you and me. Loved you before you ever did a good thing. Sent his son before you ever earned anything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now notice that. Jesus didn't come to buy God's love for you. God sent Jesus because he loved that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
That's the good news we proclaim. Have you looked to Christ and been saved? If not, I exhort you to do so now. For the just wrath of God does bear down upon you. And in a moment, when you're not expecting it, you will die, and you will face the Lord. And you will be judged. Jesus is the only hope of salvation. If you look to him, God will forgive you of your sin. He will credit to you all of Christ's righteousness. And he'll adopt you as his child. That's what the apostles go and proclaim in every evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts. That's what they go and make known. They are proclaiming the gospel to guilty people who need the substitutionary atoning work of Christ to be saved. With that said, let's move on to our second major point. What is the gospel? What is the scope of the Great Commission? If that's the message we're proclaiming on our mission, what's the scope of the Great Commission? In other words, to whom are we to proclaim that message? To whom are we to proclaim it? I'm asking this question, as you'll notice, the same phrase is used in Matthew 28, 19, and Luke 24, 47. So let's look over at Matthew 28. If you could turn back there. And notice verse 18 again. Jesus meets them on the mountain. There's much to be said about that that I don't have time to say. And it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Incidentally, just before I move on, I don't want you to forget this. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Psalm 2, um, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. You guys remember that? Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, 13 through 14, that the, the one who is like the Son of Man who comes up to the Ancient of Days and he's being given authority over every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And he's, what Jesus is saying is, that's been fulfilled. I am the Messianic King. I have authority in heaven and on earth. Then he goes on to say, therefore. So if that's true, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And then he's going to tell them how to do that. He's going to give them the means. Baptizing them and teaching them, he's going to tell them how they're empowered to it. But I just want to focus on this phrase, all nations. All nations. The Greek phrase is pantata ethne. Pantata ethne. It's the same phrase in both Matthew and in Luke. The only distinction that is in Luke, Jesus tells the disciples where the proclamation of the gospel will begin. He says it will begin in Jerusalem. Go and do this in all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, which is what we see played out in the book of Acts, isn't it? Where do they first preach the gospel? Jerusalem. But what is meant by all nations? See, that's the question. What's meant by that? And that's become the source of no little debate. You may not know that if you're not paying attention to what's happening in sort of missiological circles, which, which I don't think most people are spending a lot of time on that. Um, they just think, well, um, we should preach the gospel to anybody who doesn't know it. Good. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But this has become this debate. What do we mean by all nations? It's also become the source of, a, of, of all manner of craziness. What do we mean by that? So before I answer the question, let, let me answer a more fundamental question. Why are we concerned with answering that question? Why do we need to answer it? Well, simply because we want to fulfill the command that Christ has given us, and we need to make sure we're not confused about the scope of that command. To whom are we to go? You have heard, probably rightly, that we can translate this. You guys heard this? That pantata ethne, do you hear that word ethne? can refer to ethnicities or people groups. Have you guys heard that language before? All the nations, all the people groups. 
And people group is a term that's come to mean so many different things in recent years that it seems nearly meaningless. You know, when something starts to mean everything, it begins to mean nothing really because it has no distinguishing character to it. Um, and so that's been the problem and quite the debate. And, and some people think that, that folks like me, um, because I co-founded an organization that trains people to go to um, fulfill the scope, if you will, of this commission, um, they think I'm obsessed with this kind of thing because uh, in particular circles, people um, have this idea that if we can figure out who exactly the people groups are, if we can come up sort of a, with a numerically exact definition of the people groups, then we can calculate exactly how many people groups there are and exactly how long and how many people it will take to quote unquote finish the task. And then by doing that, Matthew 24, 14, we can sort of force the hand of Jesus to return. Now we're not trying to say, I want you to, I'm not trying to say that there are 3,000 people groups, because you're going, you're going to hear me use that language later. There are about 3,000, so I'm going to argue. 3,000 to 3,100 people groups, I think, properly defined. Um, and what I'm not trying to say is, well, there are 3,000 people groups. We generally need a team of about eight folks per group, so a team of about eight. That means we need about 24,000 missionaries to be trained. And since there's an attrition rate of about 50% of the missionaries who go to the field, we need really 48,000 missionaries to be trained. And so with our radius campuses that we have in Mexico and we have in Asia and now building in India, uh, we can do something like 300 per year. And if we really go big, maybe we can reach 600 per year. And so it'll take 600 times 80 uh, years. Boom, the Lord returns, 80 years. Y'all just join me. That's not what we're saying. I don't want you to get the impression that I'm saying that. In other words, we're not trying to come up with such a numerically precise set of parameters that we believe we can somehow hit it and then force the Lord to return. We're not arrogant enough to believe that we are finally those who will, quote, unquote, finish the task, that we somehow know that. We don't know. Christ will return when he's pleased to return on the day the Father's appointed. We simply want to be those who are faithful to the task. We're merely trying to ask, what has Christ commanded the church to do, and to whom has he commanded the church to do it? How do we define that? That's what I'm going to attempt to get at. Um, now, I'm not going to provide you with a perfectly exact answer, because we do not have a numerically precise answer to the question. But I, but I do want to give you first some wrong answers. That's easy, right? So I can just take the low-hanging fruit from the tree. Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it's not. Some incorrect answers, three of them specifically. Some argue it's Gentiles as opposed to Jews. So by all nations, what we mean is Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Um, so all the non-Jewish people, we say Gentiles, all the people who are not descended from Abraham according to the flesh. So look at Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and earth is referencing the authoritative sphere of the Christ and it's followed by, therefore, go and make disciples of Pontata ethne. This tells us we cannot exclude Jews from all the nations. They are one of the nations over which Christ has authority. The same is true in Luke 24, 47, and I'm going to make this a bit more when he says that they're to proclaim the gospel to who? The Pontata ethne. All the nations. Beginning where? Jerusalem. Thus the Jews are part of the scope denominated by all nations. That's why Paul will say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of salvation to all who believe. To the who first? Jews, and also to the Greeks and the Gentiles. The Jews are part of the scope, so it cannot be narrowed to Gentiles. Frankly, it can't be narrowed to Gentiles um, in the way that the, the other uses of Pontotal, Ethne, and Matthew and Luke. L listen to some of them. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, clearly this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to the Jews, right? They have to be included. Or how about Matthew 25, 32? Before him 
will be gathered all the nations, pontata ethne, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's talking about judgment. We would assume that Jews and Gentiles are all included in that. Luke 12.30, when Jesus is teaching them about prayer, not to be anxious and seek after worldly things, he says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. All the nations must include the Jews because we can read examples of the Jews seeking after worldly things as well. None of these texts can exclude Jews. The gospel must go to all the nations. All the nations will be gathered and judged. All the nations of the world seek after worldly things. So we know the phrase pontata ethne as it's being used in context in Matthew 28, 19 and Luke 24, 47 should not be narrowed to mean only Gentiles as opposed to Jews. It means all the nations, including Jewish and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. So to say it points to the mystery of the gospel that the, that the Jewish Messiah is saving Gentiles as well and bringing them into his covenant people and promises, that's true. I mean, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, that somehow the Gentiles have been enfolded. They're one people now. But that doesn't get at our full meaning. Secondly, it does not mean geopolitical entities. Geopolitical entities. When I say a geopolitical entity, here's the problem. The difficulty with the word nation is that we tend to think of geopolitical entities. So we think of the United States as a nation, or France, or Germany, or um, the UK, or what have you, we think of as a nation. We think about geographical borders and a body politic, right? When I say a body politic, I mean we have geographical borders and we're governed under the same constitutional charter in our, in our system anyway. Right? We think of that when we think of nations. Now, I'm not arguing that geopolitical entities are entirely ruled out by definition, because in Psalm 2, one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, Jesus is spoken as, uh, of as the one who will break um, the nations with a rod of iron. He will judge the nations, and that does include geopolitical entities. In fact, in Daniel 7, 13-14, when Jesus handed authority over all the nations, the context is in the vision of the kingdom of God following four wicked nations, if you guys remember that. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But the definition of geopolitical nations is still not getting us all the way there. In other words, what I'm saying is Jews and Gentiles are both included. Geopolitical nations can be included, but none of that's saying enough. It's not saying enough, and it's not precisely what Jesus means. Thirdly, it's not, and this is the one that gets us into all kinds of craziness, it's not any kind of affinity group that's largely unbelieving. There are some um, websites you can go to look up unreached people groups. And there's like 16,000 unreached people groups. And, and everything that shares any kind of affinity is a people group. So like left-handed lesbian bikers in South Carolina, people group. Unreached, right? Um, what, so what do we mean? What do, what do I mean? Like, I was just in Hawaii. This is how it gets applied in the church. I was just in Hawaii hearing about the surfing community in Hawaii, right? And Hawaii is, the surfing community is overwhelmingly unbelieving. Less than 2%, what some guys told me. Therefore, Hawaiian surfers are an unreached people group, and I'm suddenly feeling the call of God to the mission of reaching Hawaiian surfers, right? This is where we end up going. Who doesn't want God to call them to that gig? Now, by all means, I encourage churches in Hawaii to pursue evangelizing their surf community. The churches in Hawaii should evangelize their surf community. That's good. And I would say um, it's required of the local churches to reach the people in their community. Required. But that's not what Jesus means by a people group. It's not what he means. So are we able to give any constructive definitions of what Jesus... I just, like, did all this deconstruction. Are we able to give any constructive definitions of what Jesus means by a people group? And I think we are. Who are all the nations? Who are the pontata ethne, or all the peoples? I want to tie this back to my first point. In other words, what I want you to see is that my first point and my second point are necessarily tied together. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the history of Jesus Christ that we heard in the first point, is tied to the scope of the commission. 
the history of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the doctrine this has done for you and your salvation, um, is what we're proclaiming. That's the fulfillment of, if you will, what I, I told you, it's the fulfillment of his promised mission in the Old Testament, and it's to go to all the nations. So we have to get some definition, because Jesus says, I'm fulfilling what was promised about me. And so we get the clue there that we ought to go back to the Old Testament to get some of well, what was promised about you. To whom were you promised to go? See, we know what you were promised to do. We just defined that. But to who were you promised to go? Who were you doing that for? What was the promise there? Just to ground that, though, look at Luke 24 really quickly so you can see what I mean. Look at verse 44 again. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, I have to fulfill everything written about me. And, it, and what's written about him is he will do a particular thing for a particular people. And we're to announce it to them. Who are they? Look back, just so you see that again, look back at verse Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when Jesus, as the resurrected Christ, appears to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then when he appears to the eleven in the uh, room that they're in on the day of the resurrection, what does Jesus believe he ought to teach? The Old Testament. He ought to teach them the word of God and how he's here to fulfill it. And where does it begin? With Moses. Now what does Moses write? What we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if we're going to understand the commission of Christ to his church that we are to proclaim, preach, announce, and herald the accomplishment of his mission, in fulfillment of what God has promised throughout the Old Testament, um, if we're going to proclaim that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and if we say that in the Old Testament we hear um, about the Christ who will come and do this work, we also need to understand that we hear the promises in the Old Testament regarding to whom he will come and for whom he will do this work. And so it's precisely those Old Testament promises that are behind Jesus' command to the church to make disciples of all nations or to preach the gospel to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, here's what I'm trying to argue. If we fail to understand this commission, it's because we first failed to understand the marvelous and glorious promises regarding the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We failed to understand the promises. So for whom was Jesus promised? For whom did Jesus do this work? In order to answer that question, why don't we begin where Jesus did? Let's begin with Moses. That's where he begins. So look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now I'm going to ask you to thumb through some passages here in Genesis um, fairly quickly, but we'll, we'll camp here. I'll cite a couple of other texts, but just stay in Genesis with me for the sake of time. Genesis chapter 12. Now, I want you to remember that what we're going to read in chapter 12 has a context. It follows what's happened in Genesis 1 through 11. See how simple that is? There's the context, right? Chapter 12 follows chapter 11. Um, but, but what's happened in chapters 1 through 11? Well, in chapter 1, we hear about the creation of, uh, that God created the world in six days, on the seventh day he rested. In chapter 2, we hear about a focus in on Adam and the creation of his wife and the covenant of marriage and the commands that God had given them in the garden not to eat of the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they die. In chapter 3, we hear that Satan slithers into the garden and tempts them. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, and they die, and God curses them. And then we see the fallout of that. 
in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, you guys follow me on that, where we see global catastrophe and wickedness that grips mankind. And man is under the curse from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. In fact, the word for curse is stated five times in Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. And then we get to Genesis 12, and in verses 1 through 3, the word blessing is stated five times. And that's the context, that Abraham is not just the beginning of some, is, some group or nation we call Israel, but he is the beginning of the answer to the problem of man being under the curse. The promises made to him are answering that problem. So look at Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now catch this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that language. In Abraham, all the families of the earth, the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now go down to verse 7 real quickly. He says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Interestingly enough, Genesis 7 is picked up by Paul in Galatians 3, and Paul says in Galatians 3 that the offspring giving, being given this promise is not many, but one who is the Christ. Now, all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham and his offspring. That's what I'm driving at. Will be blessed in Abraham and his offspring. Now, all the families of the earth, what does that have to do with nations? Go to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. And look at verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now he's talking about um, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to talk about that. But just for the context, in Genesis 17, God has just changed Abram's name to Abraham. His name was Abram, exalted father. Genesis 17, his name is changed to Abraham, which means what? Father of all the nations. Now, in Genesis 18, it's not, it's not just thrown in here accidentally, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is it here? Because God wants to show you how he punishes homosexuality? Why is it here? Because Abraham, the father of many nations, now goes and intercedes for a pagan nation. And he intercedes for them. You guys remember that? <clears throat> but notice what it says here in Genesis 18 and verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So he's changed families of the earth to nations of the earth. Now Paul, in Galatians 3 and verse 8, actually elides these two terms. He quotes Genesis 12, 3. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. He quotes Genesis 12, 3, and he takes out families of the earth and puts all the nations, pantata ethne. So families of the earth and nations of the earth are the same, if you will, or interchangeable terms. Look at, we, we'll follow that out. Look at Genesis chapter um, 26. Just go to 26. We hear about um, the Christ in Genesis 22, and he's going to possess the gates of his enemies, and all the nations will be blessed in him. Genesis 22, but I want to just give you two more examples. Look at Genesis 26 and verse 4. As God takes the blessing of Abraham and passes it on through Isaac. Verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now look at when he gives it to Jacob. Look at Genesis 28, as he gives that, you guys know the promise, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This blessing is passed down. This promise to Abraham is passed down. Look at Genesis 28 and verse 14. 
Jacob has a dream and the Lord tells him what he's going to do. Look what he says. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You guys notice how they're using that interchangeably, swapping back and forth. Who is the seed of Abraham who in Genesis 22 will bless, it will possess the gates of his enemies and bless all the families and all the nations of the earth? Who is the, the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Who is the Christ? The offspring in whom all the nations will be blessed. He is, by the way, the seed of the woman mentioned in Genesis 3.15. It's the very same figure, the Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. The first gospel promise. There is a Messiah coming through the line of humanity. He will be a human. We learn that in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, we learn that that Messiah will come from the family of Abraham or from Israel. So you've narrowed humanity nation. Then we learn in Genesis 49 that he'll come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Humanity, nation, tribe. We learn in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he'll come from the house of David. You guys following this? The narrowing promise of the coming Christ. He is the serpent crushing seed of the woman and to whom is he coming to bless or to save all the families of the earth or all the nations? He's promised to a fallen, corrupted, guilty, condemned world. In Abraham's seed, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And thus all those who believe in Christ among all the nations among all the families of the earth will be Abraham's children, for Abraham is the father of many nations. So that if anyone is in Christ, Galatians 3, he is a child of Abraham. But I've not answered our question yet, have I? What's meant by family or nation? All I've done is added a term. Families of the earth, nations. Thank you. You didn't define anything for me yet. How do I know what that means? A family here seems to be something significant enough to also use the socio-political language of a nation. So Israel is not just a family, but a nation. They're a family clan of tribes or a people who multiply into actually a quite a large nation by the time we open Exodus, right? They've, God has blessed them. They've been fruitful and multiplied. Um, and Pharaoh was concerned about the size of Israel at that point, if you guys remember. At the beginning of Exodus. They're a nation. But what does Israel not yet have at the beginning of Exodus as a nation? They don't have land. They land promised to them, but there are no geographical borders for that nation. There's no government yet in place for that nation. He will put a government in place for that nation. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. He will tell them how to govern their worship, how to govern their civil life, how to govern their moral life. You guys are familiar with that their religious calendar, etc. But they don't yet have a government, they don't yet have boundaries, yet they're a family or a nation of the earth, aren't they? They're nomadic, in a sense. What do they share? Well, they're arranged into tribes and they share a common language and culture. They share a common language and culture. They exist as a people or a nation, which, by the way, Psalm 96, verse 3 and 7 uh, people and nation are also inter interchangeable terms. They, they exist as a people and a nation inside of Egypt. They don't have their own borders. They don't have their own government. But they share a language. This is where I'm starting to get to a definition. They share a language and a culture. They share a family history or a genealogy. And they're a people or a nation or a family of the earth. So language, culture... And family heritage or genealogy becomes what marks them off as a nation. Now, I want to confirm that in Genesis, just so you don't think I'm just making that up. 
um, by some kind of extraction. But I, I want you to see it directly in the text. Look at Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You guys are familiar with the Tower of Babel? Just as a, a, a brief note. Genesis chapter 11, historically the events read th that we read there in the Tower of Babel come before the genealogy we read in Genesis chapter 10. So when we read Genesis chapter 10, that's a genealogy that actually um, is told to us after what happened in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, why is it arranged that way then? Well, all of Genesis is actually, you'll hear it in the name, arranged around genealogies. There are a series of genealogies in Genesis, and the whole book is arranged around them. So the genealogy um, of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2-4, and then from 2-4 through the end of chapter uh, 4, you hear that genealogy. Then uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, the genealogy of Adam. And then you hear the genealogy of Adam through his son Seth in chapter 5. And that's going to carry you, well, uh, all the way through. So you, you, all the way through chapter 6 um, and verse 8. And then chapter 6 and verse 9, Noah's genealogy begins. And then that gets picked up. So the book is arranged around genealogy. So the genealogy, chapter 10, is then followed by the narrative in chapter 11. But the narrative in chapter 11 happens first in history. So keep that in mind. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen and mortar. Now, we, we've, we're, there's an ominous note here that their land in Shinar, which means they've gone as far, about as far in that day, you know, in, in their descriptive geography, they've gone really far east of Eden. And the further God, God's people go east of Eden, the further they're going into ungodliness, if you will. So they've gone further east of Eden. Verse 4, then they said, they said this, come let us make, uh, a, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's, it's a fascinating passage because they're going to make a name for themselves incidentally, or well, actually not incidentally, quite importantly, what has God promised Abraham? I will make your name great. Answering the curse that's upon mankind. You don't do it for yourself. But they want to make their name great, and they build this tower up to the heavens, and it says the Lord had to descend to look at it, right? They think, look at the mighty tower we've built, and God has to come down to look at it, right? And he goes on to say, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all have one language, and this is the only, be only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they po propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So now the Lord separates them into families or nations by confusing their languages and scattering them across the earth. And we see this played out in the genealogy in Genesis 10, which, uh, while it comes before Genesis 11 in the book, actually follows it historically. But look at Genesis chapter 10 and verse 5. You want, I want you to see this language. Verse 5. From these, it's, it's a genealogy I won't, this is, we're on the sons of Japheth first. From these, the coastlands, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own what? Language. By their clans, in their nations. You notice how those language, that language is being used in a parallel sort of fashion? Then we get to the sons of Ham. Ham is not good, as you know, for a variety of reasons. But let's go down 
um, to verse 20. These are the sons of Ham. By their clans, their what? Languages, their lands, and their nations. Now go down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem. So we're looking at Shem. Abraham comes from that line. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood, and frankly, after Babel. There's an apparent apposition of clans and languages and nations and people. Now catch this. What's the primary distinguishing mark common to each family or nation? Distinct languages. Distinct languages. It seems that the families of the earth, that that phrase is tied to the clans um, that form some sort of socio-political bonds and share a common language and, a potential, and potentially a land. Though clearly land is not required, as Abraham, Abraham's own family or nation was long nomadic and sojourning, yet was still a family or a people or a nation. That's why I say it is different than our geopolitical notion of states with particular borders and socio-political agreements, but not necessarily the same ethnicity or language. That's why I can say in the geopolitical state of India, there are hundreds of nations or people groups who all have different languages they speak. That's why you hear language like this in the prophets. Isaiah 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, or languages, and they shall come and see my glory. Or in Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion and, a, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that's what undergirds, what grounds the commission of Christ, that Christ is giving to his church. He has come to save men from every people, every nation, every family of the earth, every language group. And this is why, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, every nation present is hearing the works of the Lord, what? In their own Languages. It's the great reversal of Babel has begun. It's the beginning of the new, age, new creation age in Christ. That's also why in John's apocalyptic vision he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that helps us define the scope of the Great Commission. We need to make Christ known in every people group, in every nation, in every family of the earth. And the most fundamental way of distinguishing those groups is by a common language and culture and heritage or a genealogy that they share. Brothers and sisters, as best we can discern, again, not numerically precise, as best we can discern, there are somewhere between 3,000 and 3,100 language groups that presently have zero gospel witness among them. No Bible, no church, no missionary, nothing. Some of those people groups are as large as 10 to 20 million people. No Bible, no church, no missionary, nothing. No gospel witness. This means these nations have no hope of salvation. It means these nations are condemned in their sins as we are, yet without any good The question is, will we go to them? Will we go to them? Will we support those who go to them? Will we pray for these people and for those whom we send? 
are we going to fulfill Christ's commission? See, he says to teach us to obey everything he's commanded us. He didn't just command us to reach your neighbors across the street, though he did, and we ought. He commanded us to proclaim the gospel in every nation, among all the peoples of the earth. Your neighbors, not to be rude about your neighbors, they have an opportunity to hear the gospel. The gospel's in their language. There are gospel-preaching churches around them. There are, there are people preaching the gospel on the radio, the TV, though that's less and less reliable, as you all know. But they have some opportunity. 3,100 people groups. No opportunity to hear the gospel. Never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Will we go and make him known? That's what he's commissioned us to do. May the Lord be pleased to ignite in our hearts and minds a commitment to obey all that Christ has commanded his church. And may the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts the love of God, and may the love of Christ compel us to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, causing us to want to fulfill this commission that Christ has given to his church. We are thankful that someone before us was obedient so that we heard the gospel message. We're thankful that many people before us took the gospel to all sorts of people, namely, in our case, the English-speaking world, so that we would hear of Christ and be saved. We pray that by God's grace we would be obedient to do the same, so that people in every language group on earth might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. Do this work in us. Cause us to be obedient. And cause us to trust in Christ, giving thanks for the marvelous good news we know in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.